Chapter Forty of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Forty, but not to bed. Harold glanced at the clock. It was nearly one in the morning. Time to go to bed if he was going, but he did not feel inclined to go to bed. If he did, with this great discovery on his mind, he should not sleep. But there was another thing. It was Christmas Eve, or rather Christmas Day, the day of Ida's answer. If any succor was to be given at all, it must be given at once, before the fortress had capitulated. Once let the engagement be renewed, and even if the money should subsequently be forthcoming, the difficulties would be doubled. But there, he was building his hopes upon sand, and he knew it. Even supposing that he held in his hand the key to the burial place of the long lost treasure, who knew whether it would still be there, or whether rumour had not enormously added to its proportions? He was allowing his hopes and his imagination to carry him away. Still, he could not sleep, and he had a mind to see if anything could be made of it. Going to the gun room, he put on a pair of shooting boots, an old coat, and an ulster. Next, he provided himself with a dark lantern and the key of the summer house at the top of Dead Man's Mount, and silently unlocking the back door, started out into the garden. The night was very rough, for the great gale was now rising fast and bitterly cold, so cold that he hesitated for a moment before making up his mind to go on. However, he did go on, and in another two minutes was climbing the steep sides of the great tumulus. There was a wan moon in the cold sky. The wind whistled most drearily through the naked boughs of the great oaks, which groaned in answer like things in pain. Harold was not a nervous or impressionable man, but the place had a spectral look about it, and he could not help thinking of the evil reputation it had borne for all these ages. There was scarcely a man in Honham or in Boisingham either who could have been persuaded to stay half an hour by himself. On Dead Man's Mount, after the sun was well down, Harold had at different times asked one or two of them what they saw to be afraid of, and they had answered that it was not what they saw so much as what they felt. He had laughed at the time, but now he admitted to himself that he was anything but comfortable. Though if he had had to put his feelings into words, he could probably not have described them further than by saying. That he had a general sensation of somebody being behind him. However, he was not going to be frightened by this nonsense. So, consigning all superstitions to their father, the devil, he marched on boldly and unlocked the summer house door. Now, though this curious edifice had been designed for a summer house and for that purpose lined throughout with encaustic tiles, nobody, as a matter of fact, had ever dreamed of using it to sit in. To begin with, it roofed over a great depression, some thirty feet or more in diameter, for the top of the mount was hollowed out like one of those wooden cups upon which jugglers catch balls. But notwithstanding all the encaustic tiles in the world, damp will gather in a hollow like this, and the damp alone was an objection. The real fact was, however, that the spot had an evil reputation. And even those who were sufficiently well educated to know the folly of this sort of thing would not willingly have gone there for purposes of enjoyment. 
so it had suffered the general fate of disused places, having fallen more or less out of repair and become a receptacle for garden tools, broken cucumber frames, and lumber of various sorts. Harold got the door open and entered, shutting it behind him. It was, if anything, more disagreeable in the empty silence of the wide place, for the space roofed over was considerable, than it had been outside, and the question at once arose in his mind, what was he to do now that he had got there? If the treasure was there at all, probably it was deep down in the bowels of the great mound. Well, as he was on the spot, he thought that he might as well have a dig, though probably nothing would come of it. In the corner were a pickaxe and some spades and shovels. Harold got them, advanced to the center of the space, and half laughing at his own folly, set to work. First, having lit another lantern which was kept there, he removed with the sharp end of the pickaxe a large patch of the encaustic tiles exactly in the center of the depression. Then, having loosened the soil beneath with the pick, he took off his ulster and fell to digging with a will. The soil proved to be very sandy and easy to work. Indeed, from its appearance, he soon came to the conclusion that it was not virgin earth, but work soil which had been thrown there. Presently, his spade struck against something hard. He picked it up and held it to the lantern. It proved to be an ancient spearhead, and near it were some bones, though whether or no they were human, he could not at the time determine. This was very interesting. But it was scarcely what he wanted, so he dug on manfully until he found himself chest deep in a kind of grave. He had been digging for an hour now and was getting very tired. Cold as it was, the perspiration poured from him. As he paused for breath, he heard the church clock strike two, and very solemnly it sounded down the wild ways of the wind torn winter night. He dug on a little more. And then seriously thought of giving up what he was somewhat ashamed of having undertaken. How was he to account for this great hole to his gardener on the following morning? Then and there he made up his mind that he would not account for it. The gardener, in common with the rest of the village, believed that the place was haunted. Let him set down the hole to the spooks and their spiritual activity. Still he dug on at his grave for a little longer. It was by now becoming a matter of exceeding labor to throw the shovelfuls of soil clear out of the hole. Then he determined to stop, and with this view scrambled, not without difficulty, out of the amateur tomb. Once out, his eyes fell on a stout iron crowbar which was standing among the other tools. Such an implement is used to make holes in the earth wherein to set hurdles and stakes, and it occurred to him that it would not be a bad idea. To drive this crowbar into the bottom of the grave which he had dug, in order to ascertain if there was anything within its reach. Accordingly, he once more descended into the hole and began to work with the iron crow, driving it down with all his strength. When he had got it almost as deep as it would go, that is about three feet, it struck something, something hard, there was no doubt of it. He worked away in great excitement, widening the hole as much as he could. Yes, it was masonry, or if it was not masonry, it was something uncommonly like it. He drew the crow out of the hole, and seizing the shovel, commenced to dig again with renewed vigor. As he could no longer conveniently throw the soil from the hole, he took a skep 
or leaf-basket, which lay handy, and placing it beside him, put as much of the sandy soil as he could lift into it, and then lifted it and shot it on the edge of the pit. For three quarters of an hour he laboured thus, most manfully, till at last he came down to the stonework. He cleared a patch of it, and examined it attentively by the light of the dark lantern. It appeared to be rubble-work, built in the form of an arch. He struck it with the iron crow, and it gave back a hollow sound. There was a cavity of some sort underneath. His excitement and curiosity redoubled. By great efforts he widened the spot of stonework already laid bare. Luckily the soil, or rather sand, was so friable that there was very little exertion required to loosen it. This done, he took the iron crow, and, inserting it beneath a loose, flat stone, levered it up. This was a beginning, and having got rid of the large flat stone, he struck down again and again with all his strength, driving the sharp point of the heavy crow into the rubble beneath. It began to give. He could hear bits of it falling into the cavity below. There it went with a crash, more than a square foot of it. He leaned over the hole at his feet, devoutly hoping that the ground on which he was standing would not give way also, and tried to look down. The next second he threw his head back, coughing and gasping. The foul air rushing up from the cavity or chamber, or whatever it was, had half poisoned him. Then, not without difficulty, he climbed out of the grave and sat down on the pile of sand he had thrown up. Clearly he must let the air in the place sweeten a little. Clearly he must also have assistance if he was to descend into the great hole. He could not undertake that by himself. He sat there upon the edge of the pit, wondering who there was he could trust. Not his own gardener. To begin with, he would never come near the place at night. And besides, such people talk. The squire? No, he could not rouse him at this hour. And also, for obvious reasons, they had not met lately. Ah, uh, he had it. George was the man. To begin with, he could be trusted to hold his tongue. And the episode of the production of the real Mrs. Quest had taught the colonel that George was a person of no common powers. He could think, and he could act also. He threw on his coat, extinguished the large stable lantern, and having passed out, locked the door of the summer-house, and started down the mount at a trot. The wind had risen steadily during his hours of work, and was now blowing a furious gale. It was about a quarter to four in the morning, and the stars shone brightly in the hard, clean-blown sky. By their light and that of the waning moon, he struggled on in the teeth of the raging tempest. As he passed under one of the oaks, he heard a mighty crack overhead, and guessing what it was, ran like a hare. He was none too soon. A circular gust of more than usual fierceness had twisted the top right out of the great tree, and down it came upon the turf, with a rending, crashing sound that made his blood turn cold. After his escape, he avoided the neighborhood of the groaning trees. George lived in a neat little farmhouse about a quarter of a mile away. There was a shortcut to it across the fields, and this he took, breathlessly fighting his way against the gale which swept and roared and howled in its splendid might as it came leaping across the ocean from its birthplace in the distances of air. Even the stiff hawthorn fences bowed before its breath, 
and the tall poplars on the skyline bent like a rod beneath the first rush of a salmon. Excited as he was, the immensity and grandeur of the sight and sounds struck upon him with strange and awful force. Never before had he felt so far apart from man and so near that dread spirit round whose feet millions of rolling worlds rush on forever, at whose word they are, endure, and are not. He struggled on until at last reached the house. It was quite silent, but in one of the windows a light was burning. No doubt its occupants found it impossible to sleep in that wild gale. The next thing was to consider how to make himself heard. To knock at the door would be useless in that turmoil. There was only one thing to be done, throw stones at the window. He found a good-sized pebble, and standing underneath, threw it with such good will that it went right through the glass, lighting, as he afterward heard, full upon Mrs. George's sleeping nose, and nearly frightening that good woman, whose nerves were already shaken by the gale, into a fit. Next minute a red nightcap appeared at the window. "'George!' roared the colonel in a lull of the gale. "'Who's there?' came the faint answer. "'I, Colonel Quaritch, come down. I want to speak to you.' The head was withdrawn, and a couple of minutes afterward Harold saw the front door begin to open slowly. He waited till there was space enough and then slipped in, and together they forced it to. "'Stop a bit, sir,' said George. "'I'll light the lamp.' And he did. Next minute he stepped back in amazement. "'Why, what on earth have you been after, sir?' he said, contemplating Harold's filth-begrimed face and hands and clothes. "'Is anything wrong up at the castle, or is the cottage blown down?' "'No, no,' said Harold. "'Listen. You've heard tell of the treasure that old Sir James de la Mole buried in the times of the Roundheads?' "'Yes, yes, I've heard tell of that. Have the gale blown it up?' "'No, but by heavens, I believe I am in a fair way to find it.' George took another step back, remembering the tales that Mrs. Jobson had told, and not being by any means sure that the Colonel was not in a dangerous condition of lunacy. "'Give me a glass of something to drink, water or milk, and I'll tell you. "'I have been digging all night, and my throat's like a lime-kiln. "'Digging? Why, where?' "'Where? In Dead Man's Mount.' "'In Dead Man's Mount,' said George. "'Well, blow me, if that ain't a funny place to dig on a night like this.' "'And too amazed to say anything more, he went off to get the milk. "'Harold drank three glasses without stopping.' and then sat down to tell as much of his moving tale as he thought desirable. End of chapter 40